BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Koston. What should high schoolers read? It seems like a simple question, but it's not. Book bans are at a historic high. Recently, the free speech group Pan America has recorded more than 1,500 examples of books being banned or removed from schools. This isn't new, exactly. There have been debates over The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or To Kill a Mockingbird. But now contemporary books like Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe and The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas are under scrutiny, too. What students can access at school matters. To me, English class is one of the few spaces we have left where students are forced to wrestle with big ideas especially with people who disagree with them. So today, I want to get into what we're really talking about when we debate high school reading. What ideas and experiences are we saying are okay or not to teach in the classroom? My guests today are Caitlin Greenidge and Issa McCauley. Caitlin is a contributing opinion writer and the author of two novels, including Liberty. She's helped design English curriculum for schools and taught writing for nearly 15 years. Esau is also a contributing opinion writer and a professor at Wheaton College. He's the author of Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Esau. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about school. (laughs) It's funny, you know, when I graduated from high school, I was like, great, never have to talk about school again. Never have to wake up at 630 in the morning again. Here we are. So I thought it would be helpful to start out the conversation with a throwback question just to get us grounded. Caitlin, what was high school English class like for you? Oh, that's a great question. So I went to a really tiny high school in Boston where there's only like 30 people in each class, in each grade, I should say. So it was sort of like college seminar style. We all sat around a really big grand table and what we read was very traditional kind of like the great 19th century novels. Every term we read at least one Shakespeare play. And when you started in the school, every single person had to read the Odyssey over the summer. And then the first semester you were there, you were just talking about the Odyssey. So that was what high school English was like. (laughs) Wow. Issa, what was high school English class like for you? I went to a school that was a lot bigger. It had about uh, a thousand students in it. It was inner city, which is often code for black. (laughs) It was like a black high school Mm -hmm. in Huntsville, Alabama. And so I went into advanced English mostly because I wanted to have some space to discuss things. And in some ways, it was similar. I had two English teachers. One was a black English teacher. And then I had later I had a white English teacher. And the black English teacher really focused on our ability to read well, to write well, and to argue well. And the same thing with the white teacher. But the black teacher made it almost like a, a point of racial pride that you will read and write well for the people. And so I remember English as a place where I fell in love with with reading and ideas. And we read some of the traditional stuff as well. And we read Shakespeare, but I think we also squeezed in some Black novels here and there. So I went to an all-girls private school in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a Catholic school, which in Cincinnati, which is a very Catholic city, is very common. Uh, I went to Ursuline Academy, go Lions. (sighs) And I remember being 
you know, it's an all girls school. So every other girl in my class loved Pride and Prejudice and I loved Catch 22. And I was like, we are not the same. <laughs> um, but I actually never had a black teacher while I was in high school. It was a majority white high school. I grew up having access to all of my parents' books. My dad is a retired librarian. So I just read all the time. My dad brought home books all the time. But, you know, we're going to be talking about what kinds of books we think should be taught in the classroom. And I think my perspective is very like, teach them all, teach everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I want to give some context to where we're each coming from. So let's start with this. What do you think is the goal of high school English class? Caitlin, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, I think the goal of of high school English is, number one, learning how to read a text, learning how to distinguish in a text between different figures of speech. You know, I've taught or I, I did teach writing to this age group to high school students off and on for about 15 years. I was like a creative writing instructor in various modes in Boston and New York. And I also used to write curriculum for a for-profit company for a number of years. And through my work as a novelist, I often get asked to go to a lot of classrooms and interact with a lot of high school students around texts. And so I think particularly in this moment, the most important thing is sort of, number one, learning how to read a text and understanding different modes of communication. So what's the difference between hyperbole versus what is being used in metaphorical language versus literal language? All those things. What is satire? Which seems to be something we fail at all the time. (laughs) Right, right. What is satire? Sort of all these modes of address that are used interchangeably throughout our culture constantly, throughout different forms constantly, that many people sort of maybe have like heard the word of and think they understand, but most of us are using either incorrectly or (laughs) misunderstanding. And I think that's a really important skill that I see people who, you know, have PhDs who don't seem to be able to do that. (laughs) So to me, it's a really important issue because I think it decides so much of our public discourse. When you lose those abilities, when you lose that tendency, all else is lost. You you can't really have conversations and you, you especially can't have conversations across class lines, across race lines, across gender lines if you don't have those skills. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about American culture is all of our subcultures that have these particular languages and ways of speaking. And if you don't have the ability to even just appreciate that that's a fact, you are going to have a really hard time moving forward in this country. Right. Can you give me an example of when you've seen, as you mentioned, people with PhDs failing to close read? (laughs) Well, in that instance, I think it's probably, for me, I think the thing that like pops into my mind right now is the continual denigration of a word like woke, which, you know, Black people keep saying like, this is the history of where this word came from. This is why we came up with this word. This is why we came up with this language around this word to describe a very particular experience of living in America that we have tracked since we've been here, that's been a part of our literary tradition since we've been here. And we also know, knowing that tradition, that it is also tradition for white dominant cultures to come in and to corrupt our language and to turn it into something else. And that's what's happening here. But, you know, that word is very seductive for a very large portion of white America to just sort of like throw everywhere. And so I think the arguments or the conversation you could have around sort of like, what do you actually mean when you're saying that word would be, I don't think they'd be easier, but they would be 
we could maybe have a little bit more traction if people had the ability to understand and talk about figurative language, the uses of language, how people have used language both as resistance and as self-determination. And I think if you can talk about text and if teachers can have the ability and freedom to talk about texts in those sorts of ways, students can be prepared when they enter into the larger world to enter into these discussions in actually intelligent ways. Issa, what do you think is the goal of high school English? I think that she did a great job of capturing the discussion of the skills necessary and how those things are going to help you in life. But I want to speak a little bit about what I think texts do and how texts change my life. When I think of reading a work, it's like I'm entering into the narrative world of the writer. And normally the writer has something to say about life, what it means to be human, about about love, about joy, about sorrow. And I think that great fiction writers and great fiction are driven by this question about making sense to the world. And so I think a good English class, this may be overly simplistic, is to get our students to lift their head above the question of how can I make the most money or acquire the most things to ask the deeper questions of meaning. And as a teacher, and I taught high school and I teach in college now, the hardest thing to do is to get the student to think. Mm -hmm. And so great literature and great English class just makes the students engage and it overcomes that cynicism. Cynicism, I think, is a manifestation of insecurity because you're afraid to care. And if you care and you fail, then you hurt. And so I think that the goal of good English is to get the students to think. Every time I read a book or I read an article, I'm opening myself up to someone who thinks differently than me, who can better inform how I live and move and breathe. I think that's really important. And I I just want to add, like, the reason why great literature is great literature is because it's often it's about people who hold vast contradictions in themselves, in which there are no easy answers, in which there is no real clear resolution in which you're, whenever you come back to that text, you find new questions to ask yourself. You know, there's that famous James Baldwin court, like art is supposed to be asking you sort of continual questions. And so I think probably for many people who have bad experiences in English classes, it's because your teacher or your curriculum or your school is ignoring all those things and is sort of treating literature as a moral high ground or treating literature as a place where you can't have those questions or you can't dissent or you can't say, I hate this book because it does X. You know, I think those are probably the places where most people, when you ask them, like, what book did you hate reading in high school? And everybody is sort of like, I hated Catcher in the Rye because I was the only person who understood Holden wasn't, you know, an a-hole or whatever. Which yeah. you're like, Holden Caulfield was yeah. a giant <laughs> jerk. And I feel as if that's, right. that's, we don't talk about that enough. But, but that's the whole point of the book, yeah. right? The whole point of the book is he is a he's a 13-year-old or however he's supposed to be your old a hole yeah. who's grown up rich and privileged. The author knows that. Like they right. know yes. that when they put that on the page. And so I think it's a detriment to how that book is taught that so many people feel like that's somehow like a new revelation that nobody has talked about before Mm -hmm. when hopefully a teacher teaches that book is like, this guy is an a-hole. We're going to read about him. He's going to piss you off. And we're going to talk about how the author made that happen on the page and what are the things that are making you mad about this character. And then hopefully the next level is you're all the same age as this character. So what are the things that this character is doing that's similar to what you are doing right now that you may not particularly be happy or proud about in your own life? 
life. Like that to me is the entry point into a novel or getting a teenager into talking about a book so that then you can talk about those bigger things like metaphor, like imagery, like what is um, Salinger doing here on this page when he's doing like that's the entry conversation that you have into that book to be able to have that higher level conversation about how a book actually is built and operates. Right. And I think that that gets to the conversation that we're having about English class as a place to learn critical thinking skills, even about yourself, to think critically about yourself and the role that you play in the world versus English class as a place to think about the big questions, which I kind of think it's both. And I remember my own experience with English class, and I think one of the most useful parts was being exposed to some of the classics because I felt as if I was connected to everyone else who had ever read those books, especially when we have so many different experiences of living in the same country. These books give us something to share and a common language to have. And I think that that gets actually at why these conversations about what kids read in school are as contentious as they are. But I also think that the debates that we have about what we read in English class are actually debates about what kinds of communal values we hold as a country. What do you think, Caitlin? I think that's true. I think when you're talking about what we should read in English class, you're really talking about how to make a common language for people to talk across. And if we are such a diverse nation, racially, economically, culturally, regionally, there has to be some sort of touchstone for people to be able to have common ways to talk about the human experience and to talk about themselves. And a very good curriculum would do that, would have books sort of across the specter and books by people across time and across different cultures. Because I think what often tends to happen, too, is when we say we want books with big universal themes, a lot of times people interpret that to mean books in which Black people and people of color are not present because we are not universal. Our experiences are not somehow not universal, right? So like Jane Austen is universal. Tony Kade Bambara is not, right? Like that's kind of like the distinction that people make. And I think that when we say we want sort of like a big universal curriculum, we have to be really specific about what that means. And for me, the universality comes from taking texts from all of these different cultures and comparing texts across cultures to find a common denominator. Like, I understand why we had to read the Odyssey in ninth grade. I'm grateful Mm -hmm. for it. I think it was very helpful. I also think it would have been really helpful to read alongside it epics from Mali and from pre-colonial India and like other places to be able to understand like the epic tradition. I think that would have been a more interesting class. The Western canon was created before Black people got a vote. And after it was established, you know, as society has progressed, we've tried to sneak in the occasional Black author, you know, and now Zora Neale Hurston is often included there. Toni Morrison is often included there. But it's a corrective that it's almost like there's not enough space because so much of this, yeah, the space was taken up before they really Mm -hmm. considered other voices. And so I do believe that we need to reconsider who and what makes up a common language, which seems to be impossible right now in a country that is that seems to be ripping itself apart around identity issues. But I also want to say that there's something to be said about the limits of something like a universal canon. So I think that it might be important if I'm in the South to where I grew up, I might have two or three extra books about what it means to be in that region of the country and literature that is distinctly Southern. So I think there might need to be a universal, like, 
a shared canning with some kind of regional emphases. And I would also suggest that it is not so much that we all have read the same books, but if we could kind of use our regional literature as a way of asking these questions, and then we're bringing out people who have more empathy. Like everybody can read the same books and come Mm -hmm. out equally racist or sexist, right? (laughs) Right. I'm always struck by how we talk about the canon. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I am attracted to the idea that there is a set of texts that is so universally important and also so universally applicable that everyone should read them, even just to understand what we're all talking about. I talk about all the time about how I think that reading religious texts as literature, Esau, you'll get this, that like there are times in which I make what I believe to be bog standard biblical references and people are just like, have no idea what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And I'm just like, you know, like the prodigal son. Yes. Yeah, like, he, anyway, he left. Well, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious, Esau, how do you define the canon such as it exists? Oh, man, I'm going to have to leave that statement that you tossed out about reading biblical texts to the side because there's probably no other thing plaguing America more than like our poor reading of our religious texts, which is an issue for another day. I would define the canon as those books that by their very merit stick with us. And we have to ask the question, why do we keep reading Tolstoy? And I think we keep reading Tolstoy because he's amazing. And so part of it is something about quality. But there's also times where books, they so much capture a moment in time and in history that you can't talk about that portion of American life or world history without them. So I think that the canon is those books. And I don't so much begrudge kind of the... I call it the pre-integration canon, (laughs) like the white canon that, Mm -hmm. that was constructed and given to students with little regard to Black people, except for the fact that we did not reconsider that as a community when we came of age. In other words, it was a settled group of text to which you could then add a few Black voices here and there, and then a few Latina voices here and there. But I think that we really need to step back and say, okay, now that we recognize that this was rooted in a hierarchy in which white culture is at the top and black culture is at the bottom, what is our new understanding of what is valuable? And what are some of those books that we thought that we had to read that could actually be captured just as well by authors from other cultures? I would also just add to that, you know, like books are not created in a vacuum. They're written in the historical tensions of the times that they were written. So I think even if you were to say, like, we're going to just stick with the Western canon that was created, you know, like pre-integration or whatever, (laughs) you can teach those books by talking about what is in them and what has been left out. So you can teach persuasion and point out that when it was being written, there's a whole question in the larger British empire of what's going to happen around slavery and emancipation and the intense wealth that came from slavery for these many of these characters. And that's the subtext of of all these questions about, like, who's getting married or whatever. They're really (laughs) talking about who's transferring blood money from place to place. Like, what if we talked about persuasion in that sort of way and how everybody who is a part of that culture knows that that's where the money is coming from and how does that affect people's sort of like interior lives or doesn't affect their interior lives? Like I would make the argument that that's perhaps where a lot of the emotional constriction comes from in those cultures is knowing that you can't actually name sort of the great terror that is propping up your whole sort of life. That's me as a novelist like going Mm -hmm. off and and like way, way cycling. But there's a way where you could make that argument around those texts. And I keep thinking about... um, 
there was the terrible shooting at the supermarket in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And the shooter was talking about the great replacement theory. And and at first, the sort of thing was like, this is such a fringe theory, fringe theory. And, you know, you had to point out, they talk about the great replacement theory in The Great Gatsby that is a important subplot of The Great Gatsby, that Daisy's husband is a white supremacist, is afraid that white people are dying off. Right. So, like... Why aren't we talking about that in those texts? That doesn't have to be the sole discussion you have about The Great Gatsby, but that's a really important point to talk about, that that was sort of like the milieu that this book was written in, and that fear of losing white power is a huge theme in the book. Like, that's what The Great Gatsby is about, you know? So I think we can talk about these books in a much more nuanced way, and, and unfortunately, I think a big part of it that we're not saying is that now teachers have very, very good reason to fear even pointing those things out. Right. And I think that that context is so important. I know that, you know, in my entire life, there's been this debate about taking out the adventures of Huckleberry Finn Mm -hmm. from readings. And part of it is because I think of that lack of context in which Finn decides that he is not going to return Jim, the runaway slave, to his owners. And he believes in the context in which he is living that the line is, all right, then I'll go to hell. This idea that, like, if I have to decide between following societal norms and returning a runaway slave who is believed in his context to be property, I would go to work and steal Jim out of slavery again. And, you know, as long as I was in, I would go whole hog. And I think about that a lot, about how it's so it seems to be very difficult to talk about the context in which these books are written. It's difficult to talk about how The Great Gatsby is written at a time of both immense white success, but immense white fear about what immigration means. Because in many ways, they're not necessarily even talking about black people. No, they're, they're talking, talking about, about slightly less they're white They're talking about, like, people. Italians. Yes. <laughs> like, the passing of the spicy great race is, yeah, the, the passing of the great race is like, we might have too many Czechoslovakians. Yes, yeah. 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 So what I'm hearing, Caitlin, is that this is not necessarily about the books. This is about the teaching. Yeah, I think you brought up Huckleberry Finn. That's a fantastic example because that is a question of teaching. And the flip side of sort of this great question of what Finn is doing is I think every single Black person who you talk to who has gone to a school with mostly white teachers or with all white students has a story about being forced to say the N-word by a teacher in Mm -hmm. reading that text out loud. exactly. So we have to talk about that part of it, of text used as domination by by white teachers over students of color and Black students in a very particular way, which I think is the other side of this that people feel really strongly about the canon because of those white supremacist teaching techniques that are built into our education system and that many white teachers, both vindictively and thinking that they're doing the right thing, force students into these interactions. This is the thing that I think that people get wrong in this conversation. They think they can settle the proper formation of our students by the books Mm -hmm. that they choose to put in the canon. But I do want to say that a lot of this comes down to the formation of our teachers and the ways in which they teach students to engage text. And that's something that you can't do by the canon. You can't have a book that a teacher can't ruin. So I guess one of the experiences that I remember being most traumatizing is this book is so good that we need to just ignore the racism. Uh-huh. And yes. look at it as literature. <laughs> and it's such great literature. Let's just ignore this kind of thing. No, no, no. Heart of darkness. I, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, it's so good. Ignore the racism. I was like, well, no, like, That is the thing that is making me feel uncomfortable in class. And had you sat down 
with me in that class and said, okay, we'll have a session or two where we talk about this problematic aspect. And then we could talk about their use of metaphor. Okay, fine, right? But like, I think that one of the things that it's underneath that is this fear that if we acknowledge the racism that is in our literature and we make that a point of emphasis, then that reality runs through all of American history and culture. In other words, you can't tell the story of any aspect of American greatness without saying the places that is tainted by racism. And when you speak about that tainting by racism, people feel like the greatness is all gone. And so they say, let's just downplay the racist part and look at the glory. And I just can't help but see the racism. And so I think that's what makes the discussions around the canon complicated because the teacher has to be able to see these texts as both powerful and profoundly broken because they're written by humans who often have those contradictions in themselves. Yeah, and I I think another detriment to how teachers are, are supported is that like, Oftentimes there is no space even to have that conversation and to point out that people have been noticing this about this book for generations. You're not the first reader to <laughs> notice this. So, you know, how helpful would it be if you were to read Heart of Darkness, say, and your teacher had the time and space to also put, you know, Chinua Achebe's essay critiquing it beside mm-hmm. you? So I think the reason one of the reasons why that doesn't happen is, number one, teachers don't have any space and time and money for it. And number two, subconsciously, to know that you are not the first person pointing this out, to know, in fact, that there's a whole tradition of writers of color and Black writers who for centuries have pointed to places in the canon and said, actually, no, this is what is wrong. Actually, no, this is what needs to be here. Actually, no, I'm going to fill the space with something else. That's very, very, very profound and cut sort of like at the heart of white supremacist culture. And so it's much easier in many ways to say to a student, yeah, you're the only one who noticed that Heart of Darkest is racist, yeah. right? <laughs> Instead of yeah. saying, you're part of a long lineage of people who noticed this and who did work to try and point it out. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com slash NYT. That's netsuite.com slash NYT. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short, that's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. I think it's worth acknowledging, and we know this, that the canon is always evolving, whether we like it or not. And some works become more meaningful over time and some lose resonance. I remember when I was in sixth grade, we read Our American Cousin, which is the play that Abraham Lincoln was seeing when he was assassinated. 
friends, it is it has not stood the test of time because most things don't. Our canon changes. Sometimes the book is going to last the test of time. Sometimes it's going to be Avatar. <laughs> so what do you see as the goal of revising the canon? Should it be to mirror what's taking place or mirror what should be taking place? How do you think about this? I think in order to reform the canon, we have to get underneath this American fear as to relate to both the power and the limitations of books. So, for example, I read Common Punishment and I didn't become Orthodox. No. I read Malcolm X and I didn't join the Nation of Islam. A book can be powerful and it can change you and you don't have to adopt everything in the book. So I think that we overestimate the power of literature as it relates to an ideology. So I think that the first thing we have to do is get underneath this American fear of control and producing certain kinds of citizens that we think are going to help us be who we're going to be and just open ourselves up to great literature from wherever it arises. When we begin to think about the canon, I think the first question is underrepresentation. Who have we historically underrepresented and who from that community can lift those works up and say we missed it? Yeah, I th- I just want to say you said so eloquently, Isa, like this question of control, which is such a, a ribbon through American culture that just really corrupts so much this desire to control. And so I think, again, like thinking of the canon as a gateway and as a tool and less as sort of like a prescriptive or as a way to judge who knows and who doesn't know what's in the canon or a way to judge, you know, are you have you been taught correctly or are you an imbecile? If we think of the canon as simply like a tool to help us, I think that opens up a lot sort of thing. But ultimately, making any sort of canon is propaganda. That's just like the mm-hmm. name of the game. So I, I think this question of opening up yeah, control and understanding that students are going to come to the text in any sort of way that they come to it. And that's part of what reading is. You know, if someone's takeaway is different than yours, that doesn't mean that the text has failed or that the canon is corrupting people or the canon isn't good anymore. It just means that you are two humans reading a book and you came to different conclusions. Esau, you brought this up about how people seem to think that, like, you know, that if you read a book, you will immediately be inculcated by what the book is telling you, which just like, if that's how school worked, school would be very different. (laughs) And I I would also argue, and I, I hate this term, but I do think in some ways, historically, what we want kids to read in schools is often a form of signaling to other people. Um, a form of virtue signaling even. And I actually see in some ways that the recent wave of attempted book bans, I think that there are some where people are like, oh, you know, but this book's too complicated for this age group or something like that. But like at the same point, like these gestures are kind of symbolic. Kids can find these books elsewhere or find them on the internet. So these bans actually say more about what ideas adults are afraid of their children getting exposed to, whether it's the existence of racism or whether it is well, discussions wanna, of LGBT issues. I oh, just want to push back on it, them being symbolic. They actually affect the bottom line of what children's and middle grade literature will be published in the coming years because children in middle grade literature marketplace is mostly libraries and schools. So when they are banned in like a civic place like that, that means that they won't, those places won't order those things and book publishers will lose that very huge part of revenue. So it actually is not symbolic. It actually affects book acquisition and which books will be published about what subjects three, four, five years down the line. That's a good point. But Isa, you brought up that it's hard to tell whether kids think about these books this way at all. So I'm curious about how should we think about the kinds of moral conversations that books are or aren't able to offer us? 
I have um, a teenager and now a, a soon-to-be teenager in my house. They're my children. <laughs> and so uh, I, I used to have this idea of like that. I don't know why you lie to yourself once you get older, because once you have children, you begin to think that you have more influence over them than you do. Ugh. And so what I realized with my children, even my son, who's the oldest, I can present opportunities for him to think about the world via stories that I tell, books that we engage. But ultimately, he has to make the decision for himself the kind of person that he is going to be. And I'm his parent. And I think that in a similar way, and probably even a lesser way, teachers have that same responsibility. They can't control what students become. They can present them options. And if there was a simple answer to what people were going to become, we would all become that thing. And so what literature is are these different explorations into what it means to figure out how to be a human. And I think that a good teacher doesn't say, I've solved the problem. It's like these were books that were formative to me as I began to make sense of myself. And I think that once we recognize how open the human person is, then we might begin to be a little bit less fearful. And I'm sorry, this might be a strange analogy, but the Black experience is paradigmatic of that. They tried to convince us for hundreds of years. They limited our reading. They did everything to convince Black people that, you know, God wanted us to be enslaved and God wanted Mm -hmm. us to be submissive. And Black people said, no, I'm good with that. Like, we refused the propaganda. And I think the human spirit refuses to believe something that it doesn't know to be true. And so once we recognize that, we recognize the limits of any form of education and literature. And so then we begin to see education as a, a guided journey of discovery where we present to students things that we or the world has found helpful in that process. I would just say that one of the things that happens, especially around book banning around, I would say, like queer and LGBTQ books is the idea that you're the only person who's felt a certain way or had certain feelings or looked at the world in a certain way is very seductive for some people. But the negative side of that is the intense isolation that comes from it. So I think as much as it is about morals, it's also about really trying to not let queer children know that their experience is a part of the human experience. Like, that's what it's about, right? It's hoping to say you can't go to a book to know that five years ago or 10 years ago or right now someone is having these same feelings, um, you're just going to suffer alone and you're going to stew in that shame and ignorance and, and sadness about yourself into adulthood. And maybe you'll be able to figure it out then, but we're not going to try and give you the tools to talk about any of the complications of that feelings now. And that's a real political project, right? And that's where I think, you know, This is where it's an all-hands-on-deck type of situation. Public education in this country is why this country has done anything good. Let's let's just be really clear. Like, that's the only reason in this broken nation why anything good has happened is because we've had public education for the last, you know, 160 years or, how you know, since Reconstruction, essentially. So I think this is an all-hands-on-deck situation where, you know, if you care about these things, you want to figure out how you can support the public school teachers in your community to make that happen. A teacher needs to feel that their community is going to stand behind them against these sort of outsized, astroturfed assaults on what they're doing. This has been an incredibly insightful conversation. Caitlin, Issa, thank you so much for coming on the show. I love talking with you, Issa. I love talking with you, Jane. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Caitlin Greenidge is a contributing opinion writer and the features director at Harper's Bazaar. Her latest novel is Liberty. Issa McCauley is a contributing opinion writer and associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College 
and a theologian in residence at Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. This episode is part of a series Times Opinion is doing right now called What is School For? You can find a link to the other stories from parents, teachers, and students, and more in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Kristen Lynn, Phoebe Lett, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Alison Brujek and Annabelle Bacon. With original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Vesta. With editorial support from Christina Samuluski. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.